Hi everyone, Jack here from the Physio Matters team, and I just want to introduce this bonus episode of the Physio Matters podcast, where we talked to Tim Reynolds and Brian Gooski, and they have written this book called Movers and Mentors. It's really fascinating interviews with loads and loads of top names um, in the physiotherapy field. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into that and reading all they have to say. But in this podcast, what they go to talk about with Jack is all of the things that we can learn about from the giants of our industry over the years and how ideas might have moved on, but still a lot of the principles of the way that they think and the way that they went about their business still super applicable to today's practice. So really fascinating insights into the um, people that they spoke to, people like Brian Mulligan, Gwen Jull, um, Peter O'Sullivan, Kieran O'Sullivan, um, as, may, as well as many, many more. So I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into the book, but um, I hope you enjoy this bonus podcast. Finally, um, I'm recording this on the 17th of December. And the podcast is out in a couple of days. So I want to wish you all a very happy Christmas and a new year. Do keep in touch with us at the Physio Matters podcast. We have loads of plans for 2022. You would not believe all of the things that we have up our sleeves. Make sure you're subscribed to us uh, on our YouTube channel. There's going to be loads more content going through the YouTube channel, but also make sure you're on some of our podcast channels as well. Um, that will be um, super useful to you, especially now Spotify is releasing video. So we will be putting video through YouTube, but also Spotify. Um, so that will be quite a cool addition. Um, obviously, if you've not been to physio-matters.com to look at the content from the Therapy Live conferences, then please do that. Um, super bargain, absolutely tons of CPD on there. I think we're over 300 odd hours of uh, webinars from somewhere around 400 speakers. Um, absolutely amazing bank of content and loads more to go on there in 2022 as well. So I'll leave you to the podcast and um, finally, happy Christmas and a happy new year as well. Um, I hope you fill up on your favourite Christmas trimmings and um, don't get too fat and I'll see you in the new year. Okay, delighted to be here today with Brian Gusky and Tim Reynolds talking about their recent project, which is a really interesting one. And certainly as MSK commentators as we are and pseudo journalists as we pretend to be, it sounds like a really fascinating thing that they've been up to interviewing some of the best and brightest, but with a slight different take than what we would make, might do on physio matters, right? We're not necessarily getting stuck into the clinical weeds on those things, but actually understanding a bit about what makes them tick and why they do what they do. So it's great to be getting uh, the authors of this recent book and the sort of uh, pilots of this recent project um, on the show to talk about what they've been up to and also what the implications are for us all to understanding that and, and what we think the future might hold for similar sorts of influencers and commentators in our space. So without further ado, I wonder if you could just introduce yourself first then, gents, tell us a little bit about yourselves, but then also tell us about the project. So Brian, if you could go first for me, mate. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Jack, for having us on the show. We're excited to be talking with you here today. Uh, this morning. Um, I'm uh, Brian Gusky. I'm a physical therapist in Rochester, New York. I've been practicing outpatient orthopedics for the last seven years. Um, for five of those years, I've been uh, directing an orthopedic residency program um, at the University of Rochester. And uh, so kind of from an early, early start, I've gotten involved with mentorship, education, and 
that's kind of where some of my my passions currently lay. So yeah, I'll let uh, Tim introduce himself and then we'll we'll dive into the book. Cool. Yeah. Good morning, Jack. My name is Tim Reynolds. I'm a uh, full-time professor at Ithaca College. I teach anatomy and physiology. Uh, before that, I was a full-time clinician um, in Ithaca, New York. Um, I did a residency and a fellowship. I teach in the residency fellowship program at Cayuga Medical Center. Um, and like Brian said, we are excited to be on the opportunity to talk to you a little bit about this project. We've been working on this for the last two and a half years or so. Um, and it's been one of the one of the most exciting things that we've had the chance to do based on the fact that we've had a chance to reach out to some of the big movers and shakers within the industry. Um, so it's going to be a fun time. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, and one of the things then, is, is it from a passion, both of you, a passion for education, therefore you wanted to speak to the educators. Um, is, is that the sort of heart of how it came about? Yeah, yeah, to an extent. So uh, back in 2015, uh, Tim and I were going through orthopedic residency together, and we started noticing uh, kind of reoccurring names, if you will, with some of the, the research and concepts that we were studying. So the Brian Mulligans, the Tim Flynn's, the Peter O'Sullivan's, the Joanne Kemp's, John Tiles, Julie Fritz, you know, we could go on and on. Um, but we started noticing that and we were like thinking, huh, these, you know, these seem to be some movers and shakers, some big researchers, some innovators in our in our profession, in our industry. Uh, and we kind of like put that on the back burner. We threw around some ideas on ways how we could, you know, kind of get all of them involved into one singular project. Uh, and then a few years later, um, you know, we kind of came up with the idea of putting together a book asking, you know, personal and professional uh, type questions to these individuals, getting away from more of the, the clinical mindset, more uh, getting away from the, the clinical paradigms, but more so like, what are these people doing that, you know, these are all movers and shakers, they're all pushing our profession in the right direction. We think, you know, that's our position. Uh, what are they all doing similarly or what are they doing differently? Um, how can we start to understand them um, as as leaders and as people as opposed to just, you know, thought thought leaders and clinicians? Um, yeah, so, that's a really interesting yeah. point, certainly because you could you could so easily get drawn on some of the 5% differences between some of those characters you've just mentioned, but that's on a clinical level. Uh, you know, really, the, the the heart of it is that as people, what is it that's made them innovate? What is it that's made them them tick? And obviously, I'm sure you'll be able to answer some of those questions later, <laughs> later in the chat, but it's so interesting that that sort of has, I think many of us have had that thought. But then only you two have, have then got stuck into that and tried to codify it almost a little bit and therefore have it in, in a package that could then be shared with the rest of us that have thought about it, but then not acted on it. So, Tim, how, how is firstly, if you, if you could uh, answer this, the same question in a way as to, as to how it came about and add to that. But then also, I'd just be, I'd love it if you could then just start to give us a bit of a, an idea of how you decided to sort of uh, frame and structure the project. Yeah, so I think one of the things that's awesome that you just mentioned, Jack, we think about a lot of stuff from a clinical standpoint. What's your favorite back exercises? How do you rehab a total total knee replacement or ACL repair? And we can find that information. I think one of the, the blessings and curses of social media nowadays, you just go right online and you can find all these answers by a variety of different people that don't really get fat checked at the door. Right? So we could ask these people some of their more clinical-based questions, but like you said, what make these people tick? And what made them the individuals that they are? And so that was one of the fun parts of the project, because after we interviewed over 75 people in this in this book, you can create the mentor that you want to find. Right. So it's one of those things that I have the opportunity to listen to Shirley Sarman for a little bit and then flip the page and get Kieran O'Sullivan's opinion on something completely different 
or I can talk to Anthony Lowe or, or some of these other people. And I think one of the other fun parts of the project is there's a variety of different names, whether that be academics or researchers or social media influencers um, or just clinicians in the trenches. Like there's not necessarily one complete um, focus from our, from our, interview tool because we had the opportunity to reach our net large and wide. And so I think that gives the reader a, a wide, vast uh, variety of opportunities to sort of figure out who do they want their mentor to be. Um, and in terms of framing the project, like Brian talked about, we saw all these names in residency um, and we read a lot of their clinical research. And some of these people were pretty significant mentors to us, um, whether that be uh, from our personal biases in terms of our clinical care. So I did a spine fellowship uh, I treat a decent amount of uh, individuals with persistent pain. Um, so reading articles from someone like Mike Stewart, um, from David Butler, these individuals I I frequently visited from a research standpoint or from their books or from their podcasts. And, and so those were my mentors when I was developing my clinical practice. And so when I think about <clears throat> framing our lists of guests, Brian and I spoke and we said, well, these people have to be on there because we read their research for the last three years, right? Yeah. And so, and then from there, we started to dive into the weeds a little bit of who's presenting at conferences, who's trying to make innovation in other avenues within the profession. And what was, what was kind of interesting was two and a half years ago, we sent out our first cold call emails, if you would, right? And so one of the things that I think is uh, amazing about the profession of physical therapy is we're all in this to help each other. Right. Our, our common goal is to make our patients better. And so Brian and I sent out these emails and we said, all right, let's see what happens and see if anybody gets back to us. And once people started to respond, then it just started this sort of cascade and this wave of responses from a variety of different people. Um, and from there, we set up either phone call interviews, Zoom interviews. Um, some people just had email responses. Um, and then from there, we accumulated all these different responses over the past two and a half years and sort of edited it down. And here we are with a book, which is pretty cool. Brilliant. Was it, insp- was it inspired in that process and format? Was that inspired by anything else, say, in, the, in sort of a pop nonfiction type world? Other, other books, you mean, Jack? Yeah, other books or the projects similar. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We were uh, definitely inspired by some of Tim Ferriss's work, uh, Tools of Titans and Tribe of Mentors. That's just what I was thinking. I thought so Tim yeah. Ferriss and Sam Harris have just done two similar sorts of amalgamation type pieces. So I wondered if that would be one of the things that had, uh, had done it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We were both, Tim and I were actually both reading that book. Um, you know, in, in between, we were taking breaks from the research during residency, reading that book. And we were like, this is a really cool model. You get to under, understand a lot of different leaders' minds and different perspectives and understand their experiences. And, you know, that's kind of, again, baked into how we came up with the idea. We were like, well, I wonder, how can we apply this to our own profession? What yeah. would our, what would students and young professionals get out of questions like this? To leaders within our our niche or our our practice, so yeah, that definitely definitely served as a model for us. Oh, I'm glad you. I'm glad you. It would have been. Uh, I'd have been surprised. It would have been a funny coincidence because yeah, <laughs> this is the tools of MSK Titans, and and, and so right. uh, it's it's brilliant that you 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 picked up on that for sure because me and many others that, that I'm sure will have read that much like we said that people will have thought it before. But then also those that have witnessed those sorts of amalgamations, um, and, and we've obviously had some feedback from 
from people that have, have implied it's slightly different of course with regards to say when i mentioned say sam harris has a project as far as i'm aware that's ongoing or, or pre-published about how these like highlights real pieces from podcasts that we've been encouraged to do and had publishers reach out about um and so you end up in this this spot where that still doesn't get you all the way there you've still got to structure it in such a way that gets it through so did you approach it almost as say Tim Ferriss would do as someone that as an influencer himself was trying to then just say what is best practice in these things what are the common themes what are the differences or did you come at it academically in a sense where these these interviews were say transcribed in a more formal manner and that, that, that certain themes and, and pieces were brought out by some form of uh, qualitative methodology I think one of the things that we did was uh more from an academic standpoint, we, we came in and we wanted to ask a series of questions that were pretty uniformal based on the fact that I think our readers would have the opportunity to then disseminate different elements of advice and be able to compare and contrast if we asked the same questions to every single individual. Sure. So we, would, we had our baseline questions, things about what are, what's good advice that you hear within the profession, what's bad advice. If you had to put up a sign in every academic hall, what would your sign say? If you had to read one to three books or if you had to pick one to three books that have influenced your life, what would that be? Good investments that you've made, questions about failure and how failure has influenced your life. And so I think having the opportunity to explore those um, similar questions with different responses was really helpful. But at the same time, we improv because I think it's one of those things that when we're on a Zoom interview with Brian Mulligan, I want to ask Brian Mulligan everything, right? I mean, this guy invented like this Plus, whole. You're like, not gonna, you're not gonna keep Brian on your. Oh no, of course not. Brian, Brian Mulligan didn't uh, didn't stay the course in terms of uh, <laughs> the direction of the of the, of the interview by any stretch of the imagination, or Stanley Paris, right? I mean, it's it's one of these oh, things yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, these guys are are some of our <laughs> founding fathers of the profession, right? And so. I wanted to ask other questions and those questions sort of snuck into the interview and Brian's ability to ad lib during a, during a zoom call or something like that, those elements all sort of made it in. And we asked some unique questions because for for some of our research mindset, what are you excited to see in the next five to 10 years? Like what's up and coming that we don't even know about or what gets you excited. And so those are the kind of things that I think, um, allow our reader to see a little bit of the individualness within each of the podcasts or within each of the uh, different chapters of the book. Um, for the most part, pretty well structured. Brilliant. How did you go about picking them, Brian? Then, if you did, I know you've given me some clues, but uh, yeah, how much was wet finger to the wind sort of just trying to sense what, because you, it sounds like your instincts are good, gents, don't get me wrong, but it's still at the heart of it from what I'm hearing so far, there has been some sort of what are the names frequently encountered and stuff like that. So it wasn't necessarily some sort of scientific process unless, unless you are going to enlighten me as to other methods of selection. No, no, Jack. Yeah. I was just, I was going to say before we asked that a previous question, you know, we are totally transparent that we did not have any robust Excel spreadsheet of objective markers on, you know, what's a qualify who, who qualifies for this, for this project and who doesn't. Uh, as Tim said earlier, we we created kind of a, initially our our dream team, if you will, right? Like, you know, we got to have uh, Peter O'Sullivan, we got to have Tim Flynn, we got to have John Childs, we got to have Shirley Sarman. You know, we need we need to have these people. We need to have uh, Jeff Moore. Um, and from there, we we kind of dove into some of uh, their research or the courses that they were teaching, and then looked at 
well, who are they kind of working with? What is, what is this person done? What is this person accomplished? Where has this uh, person presented? Um, and then, I mean, honestly, we dove back into blogs back from the, the early and mid two thousands, who was shaping kind of the way we practice now, who was writing there. Um, so yeah, we kind of, uh, you know, as Tim said, casted a really large net because part of the reason is we didn't really know who was going to give us, give us a minute to talk. Right. I mean, Stanley Paris and, uh, Heidi Janenga, the CEO of, uh, of WebPT, these are really busy people. They are, they, you know, pack a lot into a day and here we are trying to just get, gather some names to put out uh, a leadership. Um, and- yeah. You're living like, if we can get, if we can get. Yeah. So if we get ten of ten of this forty, then we'll be happy type type situation. And I, I, right. I, I know the feeling mainly when we've been running events. Um, and so I, I I totally get that. I think that's a, that's that's brilliant. And I'm so pleased to hear the response rate that you got. I definitely I'm not surprised though at that because you're right. I think it's that we're all we're simultaneously into helping people, but we're also into helping people help people. Right. This educate we we all become educators of a sort. And I think that. I'll, I'll admit a, a view and a bias of mine and feel free to push back on it if needs be. But it's like, because the because the evidence base as well as, and by that I include our experiential evidence that's emerged from it, is that we're realizing how central education and communication is to everything. And so, and, and, and rightly, we're weighting subjective assessment over special testing and things like that. And so we're starting to notice that. I think that that for me has just naturally meant that then, because we are recognizing that we need to become better educators for our patients, as well as the fact that then bringing on future therapists means that you've got to educate the educators. And so it naturally makes us a bit more, you might not academically have picked up like needing to pursue pedagogy theory and stuff, but it's like we've just naturally become more interested in educating next and current generations. And I think that that's why I, I, I would have been surprised if you hadn't have had a quite open-armed response because I think that people are wanting to share that and are recognizing increasingly that there is something that's beyond their message. The messenger and some of the factors affecting them and what inspires them and their style is is not just the vessel, right? There's something special about that part of the source as well. And so I think that it's great and intuitive that you you'd spotted that. And again, thank you for for doing the good work at, at, at getting it together. Yeah, no, I think it's one of those things when when we're talking to some of these people, like Peter O'Sullivan had this really good concept about the concept of uh, healthcare and the, the sort of the danger that we're in in healthcare right now, where we're operating in each of these small silos and these silos aren't necessarily interconnected. And so our message needs to be bigger than treating that small musculoskeletal injury. We're going to be thinking about the, sort of the significance that psychosocial health has and our healthcare costs that we have, especially in the States, right? I mean, it's one of those things that we, we're not doing what's best for our patients at times. And so I think having this platform, which was um, each of these individuals, all 75 plus chapters of this book, every person was able to step up onto that pedestal for a second and give their message. And I think that message was able to hopefully reach the right person at the right time as they're reading this. Because not everybody's message is going to resonate with everybody. But if I have the opportunity to hear what I needed to hear deep down inside, to either inspire me to be a better clinician, to be a better uh, practitioner, to be a better family member, to be a better researcher, right? So it's one of those things that you can take those small little snapshots and then help that help you, which will in effect help your patients get 
moving in the right direction. So, mm, absolutely. No, that's 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 fascinating. What I feel like this is almost too big a question, but take it where you want. What were the consistent themes from the book? Uh, and and I suppose feel free to preempt my next point, which was where were the where were the real differences if there were some as well. Yeah, Tim and I kind of kicked around some of the themes as we were as we were going through this book. Um, and you know, the the 15 times that we read through it, you know, you start to pick up on, on definitely consistent themes. Um, in no particular order, I did we have kind of come up with a a list. Um, and so I'll just go through, I'll go through a, a few of those and yeah, we can kind of take mm-hmm. this in any, any direction, like you said, Jack. Uh, definitely one that one that sticks out is um, you need to seek out some form, either formal or informal mentorship. Uh, and I think Tim and I definitely uh, agree with that. And many listening to this would agree with that. Um, Jeff Moore had has a good quote in the book, uh, and he says, identify those couple people that make you say uh, that is who and where I want to be and commit to them. Find a way to add value to their lives. And then uh Tim, Tim Flynn, even in our forward, says a good mentor slows down the world and focuses us toward the purpose of our journey. So, you know, any way you kind of want to dive in and, and cut it, um, you know, mentorship in some form is really important because you, you want to have that person that's doing the thing that you want to do or is doing the thing that excites you. And you want to find out, you know, how do they get that to that position? Um and kind of take steps, obviously carving your own path, but take steps to, um, to kind of mimic that. Um, another theme we found was invest in yourself. So when you're in doubt on next steps or, or path, uh, you'll never regret in investing and learning, learning new skills. Um, and that can be continuing education. That can be finding mentorship that is investing in your, in yourself. Um, that can be a, a number of different, uh, you know, kind of in a number of different ways. Uh, so that was one thing that, that stuck out. A lot of our guests, um, some of their uh, biggest and or in best investments was, uh, you know, if they're a researcher going back and getting their, um, their PhD, for instance, um, if they're a clinician, it, it was taking a certain course or class that changed their practice. Uh, mm-hmm. So making some form of investment in yourself was, was really big. Sort of continuing on that, Bri, for a second. Um, like Mark Laslett, one of his biggest investments was going back and getting his PhD at the age of 51, right? I mean, it's like typically you think about the, the type of student that falls into like physio school, right? And their type A personality, they got a 92 on a test, they're calling home, crying on the phone to their parents because they didn't get the, the A plus that they were shooting for, right? This, these are the students that I have to go teach in about three hours. Right. right? So, um, and so these, um, these personality traits of, I don't know where my, my life is going at this point in time, I'm 21, 22, 23 years old. And that causes fear that causes, um, this perception of failure almost for some of these people. But what I think is awesome is that no, at 51 years old, if you want to go back to school and if you want to get your PhD, go for it. Like your life is not done yet. You have the opportunity for continued growth and development. And that was one of Mark Laslett's like biggest investments and most thankful investments that he made. And I think it's those small stories and tidbits that allow for the reader to understand it is okay. I am enough. And if I continue to make small changes to my life at any point in my life, it's still going to be a positive, um, positive thing to approach. So. 
it's one of the things that quality mentorship will transcend as well is the it will transcend work and home you know good mentorship you know it's, it's very rare that you'd find someone that would say that they dislike their mentor on a personal level but they've got a lot to learn from them or vice versa that they just get on really well but actually they've no respect for their clinical acumen you know you're going to get that mix it's going to be the relationship that will blur those lines and in a good way between work and home and and that the interpersonal um understanding of of what makes people um tick and also what they're aspiring to be is something quite existential right it's not that's not you can't silo that you know, person personhood is is complex, and that being inspired by some of the characters you're describing in your book. Um, yeah, one of our favorite questions, and I think this is like a a burning question that a lot of young professionals or students have. That if they had the opportunity to speak to some of these people or, or really any leader, they would ask. Um, they would ask probably about failure. Uh, so one of our questions was, "What's your favorite failure?" Um, and definitely, the theme is that failure is undoubtable. Um, but learning how to leverage it and pivot is, is important. Um, you know, I think there's a few different tracks that failure can put you on. Um, one of which, which, you know, was not a consistent theme is that it shuts you down. Um, and, and you kind of stop deading your tracks on whatever goal or, or objective you were uh, pursuing. We didn't see that. Um, more commonly, it either set someone on a completely new trajectory um, and introduced them to different people or different concepts or different projects that that set them along in a different path, um, or they worked even harder to then do better the next time. Uh, so that was uh, definitely the two more common avenues that we we found. Um, but failure is is undoubtable at some point in your in your career, um, both professional and personal. Um, but how you kind of overcome that and how you can become an expert in pivoting uh, is is important. A bit of a spoiler alert, but if you can give me an example of that, I'd be appreciated. Sorry, Tim. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of those things, Jack, from a failure aspect, sort of continuing upon what I said about the concept of like a, a physio student, right? I mean, there's movers and shakers within this book that failed the boards multiple times, right? And so I can't even imagine our, our students here in the States just took the boards. They'll find out in two or three days. I send them all an email. Good luck. Best of <laughs> praying for you guys, right? Um, the nausea that must happen if you do not receive a passing grade on that, let alone once, but twice. And how you perceive yourself as a, how am I going to, how am I going to help people? I can't even pass this test. And to know that, well, these are now people that are leaders in academia or leaders in the research world, right? So that's one of the failures that we see. We've seen people fail their last clinical rotation, and so here I am in clinical practice, not even trying to take a test. And my mentor, my clinical instructor perceived that my quality of work is not good enough to move forward in the profession. And so they failed this rotation. Now they're, uh, they're teaching in a, in a university, right? So those kind of failures, but then also failures in research. Um, how many times do you try to get something published and you continually see get denied? And that's what Brian was talking about. Well, I'm going to come back and work even harder, Right or I'm going to try to pivot on this piece of research. Uh, one of the things that I think was interesting was uh, talking to Peter O'Sullivan about some of his initial lumbar stabilization articles that he pushed out back in the nineties, right. In the early two thousands. And that was such a, um, such a focus of, well, we have to focus on some of these small stabilization muscles. The TA is so important. 
and asked him like, well, what's your thoughts on that now? <laughs> so obviously completely different pivot in terms of that mindset. Um, and not necessarily that he perceives that as a failure, but how some of those words needed to be reframed. And so I think it's interesting just to see because we respect all these individuals in some way, shape or form. And like Brian said, the, the uniformal theme is that everybody fails and how you approach that failure, your perception of failure might be unique, but um, it always leads to an opportunity for some sort of growth. So, Absolutely. I think what's, what seems interesting as well is that I'm just from the names you're mentioning, although not an exhaustive list, of course, I'm sure, and I need to read the book still. But what I find interesting is that there's, there's almost a consistency I would intuit between them in at least their disposition and their style and often polymathic characters that are balancing careers of of, uh, academic pursuit, education as distinct from that, as well as linked to it. Then they've got their, they often keep their hand in clinically. Um, No doubt there's sorts of, there's the sorts of people that are inherently high achievers. They might not have been throughout, no doubt they've encountered failure. I'm not saying that everything they've touched has turned to gold, but generally speaking, they are, Impressive on many different fronts. Now, is that a consistency of disposition that you noticed amongst these people? I think, yeah, a lot of our guests are doing multiple different things um, and have their, you know, kind of weeks are filled with with different objectives and and different tasks. And whether that is teaching, whether that's you know more academics, whether that's uh, business and clinical, whether that's clinical and academics. I think there's a diversity in what our guests are doing, um, both, you know, profit and non-for-profit. A lot of our guests are, you know, kind of head of organizations, non-for-profit organizations and, um, you know, have their time and, and weeks filled with that, things like that. So, yeah, definitely a disposition uh, that we noticed was these guests just do a lot of stuff in a week and keep very busy and are pushing our profession forward. I think one interesting thing sort of pivoting off of that is while they all have their hands in many different baskets or wear multiple different hats, if you would, um, their opinions can be completely polar opposite at the same time. So you, Jack, you talked about common themes associated with the book. And so uh, a lot of high achievers or um, the perception that failure is normalized and um, good investments that you've made into yourself. But at the same time, you have people that talk talk about the significance of having a work-life balance and then others that say postpone the concept of a work-life balance because working hard right now will allow for you later on in life to then budget your time more wisely. And you have individuals that wake up at 2.30 in the morning so that they can work on research between 3.30 and 5.30. And then you have people that say, no, I never set an alarm. I just wake up when I need to because my body says that's when I need to go, right? And so it's one of those things that um, even though they're all high achievers, their, their mindsets differ. And I think we see that most commonly within the newer generation of clinicians and some of the older generation of clinicians, if you would. And so some of this more influence on the social, social media aspect. And I think it's one of the, like I said, the blessing and the curses of our profession right now is that everybody has the opportunity to have a voice. And some of those voices speak louder than others um, on the social media world. Um, and it's interesting hearing some of the researchers say 
what's what's one of the bad advice that you hear in a profession and instantly like social media social media is bad advice um and then at the same time some of these people have influenced the lives of thousands like we we had the opportunity to talk to um the prehab guys and so the prehab guys are putting together really good quality stuff and they're entirely a social media uh, social media based platform and so it's interesting to see um how those polar opposites still sort of unify with the commonality goal of improving our profession in one way, shape or form. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, the harder that each of them have thought about it, they've come to different conclusions some of the time. Um, and yet, yeah, you know, we, we can speak easier to commonalities and differences. I think one of the things that, you know, the, the, the thing that our industry at large needs to really reflect on is the fact that there aren't, a, you know, we don't have any concrete truths. So we're not, advanced enough and mature enough as a discipline to have had things that can be set in stone and, and, and very little should be set in stone but I just mean that you've got things in, in 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 chemistry and in physics and in the hardest of the hard sciences that then also translates into medicine via pharmacy that you kind of have some knowns right you've got some some things that are facts of the matter and there's just more of them than there is in say MSK and it means that therefore we're all getting pushed around by the fact that it's an exciting time to be in amongst it, but then you put you, you democratize opinion via social media, um, and and you end up in a situation where you've then got a, a sort of many voice effect as well as then the loudest voice sort of coming coming higher. I find it a really interesting mixed bag, and I'm, I'm therefore really excited to see as to how you guys pass that. I've always thought that when I when I ask after dispositions of personality, I do think that there is a generation uh, that perceive there to be a real relevant difference between the fact that them often extroverted people that are comfortable in front of a crowd that were then speaking in front of conferences that they were asked to go to of which no one was no one had a phone in their hand but they essentially were then that 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 process of selection was simply a terra firma version of what they're experiencing digitally right now right you've not got then the age of the introvert, right? You don't look back over, and Brian Mulligan's a cracking example, right? I just cannot, I cannot face this idea that but Brian Mulligan and Shirley Simon, as characters, and as, as when I've when I've heard them speak, I've never heard Shirley in person, but I've heard Brian speak in person as well as many times heard them interviewed, read much of their work, right? I really find it difficult. They might have a, a problem with the media, fair enough. But the argument of dispositional difference between them and Adam Meekins and the prehab guys, right? I won't, I won't <laughs> necessarily have it, right? The media has changed, that the world sure. has changed, but fundamentally, there's a character type um, of sorts that is more similar than different to me, and that they say, essentially they're just channeling those energies and that passion for change, granted with vastly different opinions as to where they come to. But for me, that that it, that is something that I've I've made a note of in 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 looking and thinking about and reflecting on the, the, the names of people that you've had. Again, I, I do invite you to sort of counter that because you've got into the weeds on this with, with some of those people. And so but maybe, my, maybe I'm over-stereotyping that. I think, no, I think that's a, an interesting point because, I mean, you look at what sort of avenues from an internet standpoint, from a smartphone standpoint, did Shirley Sarman have initially when she was starting some of her clinical practice? It wasn't there. So, how many publications can you get out there or how many conferences can you speak at or chapters in a book or all those different elements was your voice. And now my voice can be on the way from the parking lot into the academic hall 
I can make a statement and share it to the masses um, based on the fact that I have access to technology now. And so I think that is an opportunity to sort of make that connection. Uh, one that I didn't necessarily think about until you just mentioned it. I think that is a relatively cool concept of spinning it um, to say, well, even though their voice is a little bit different, the concepts that they're that they're preaching might be slightly uh, slightly skewed, but they're relatively some sort of commonality amongst the amongst the two. So I no, I think that's a that's a pretty cool point. Yeah, I think our guests are just using, I mean, have used and are using the resources that which are available. And yeah, like you said, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, um, as we're kind of still understanding, you know, Jack, just to go back to one of your points um, about, you know, kind of science and, and how young we are in the scope of sciences and professions. Um, yeah, we just have a lot of known unknowns right now and unknowns uh, unknowns. We don't have a lot of known knowns and we're still kind of like figuring that out as a profession. Um, and our, our guests are kind of trying to, to nudge the profession in the right direction. And um, at, again, like I said in the beginning, that's, that's our position is that all of our guests are doing something to kind of move things forward, something to, to discover, whether it's discovering new things or disseminating those new things. And that's, that's really kind of a, whether you're looking at social media from a, um, you know, this is great versus this is evil perspective. I think it, I think it can be used for a force of good um, because some of our guests are using that to disseminate the research of other guests included in our book, right? And so, if you look at it like that, you know, how do we get the word out? How do we nudge practice? How do we how do we change clinicians' behaviors in the clinic? How do we change communication styles? Well, we need to learn how to do that, and the way that we're learning how to do that is you know, fortunately or unfortunately through our phones, through social media, um, through people that have big voices and can touch a lot of, touch a lot of other people. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think it's really interesting. And uh, Shirley Sarman is using the resources that she had in terms of going to conferences and speaking in front of massive groups, um, or putting out books and then prehab guys or, you know, and a few others that we have are, um, are using social media and technology to do that. And there's a few there's a few ways in which when when you think about some of the language we've used mentors leaders there's sometimes that play that synonym game for long enough and you start to get contested and it gets a bit semantic as to whether these things are sort of denigrating or or laudable so you've got say hero you've got then guru right so you've got the opportunity to then pivot either way either side of say something like like leader to what might be in our industry then if someone said was a hero, a legend of the game, right? But then you also have this, this concept of, of guruism that typically I imagine that most of the people that you've, you've spoken to are, are, are actively trying to avoid and would be, would be offended by the, the notion that they were gurus. But it's something that, of course, that, that process does exist. It's a cultural phenomena of sorts that then sometimes people do end up being gurus and their followers. And that I don't see reason, I've not seen a reason as to why we would be inherently immune to it as an industry. Now, I'm not suddenly accusing anyone in your list or anyone in the industry specifically of being so or cultivating that or certainly not on purpose. But it's definitely something that then I felt like I did want to talk to you guys about. It's like, what, 
what are you, you what did anyone reflect on that or did that come up in your conversations and in, in regardless of whether it did or not have you given any thoughts to what differentiates say this list of, of, of characters from those that get carried away and, and become gurus to the ill effect yeah i think I know, one of the go on Tim. sorry um i think there is sort of that fine line between uh, which doctor, if you would, and uh, opportunity to sort of influence um, influence individuals on a positive sort of framework. One of the uh, one of the individual individuals that we interviewed was John Childs, um, and so what John Childs uh, made reference to was there are certain things that we should not be able to do today if it weren't for those before us, because we really do stand on the shoulder of giants. And so think about those individuals that have paved the profession to allow some of these individuals who may have some element of guruism, they wouldn't necessarily be there if it weren't for the individuals that came before them, right? And this concept also, uh, one of the individuals that we interviewed was uh, person religioso of uh, the modern manual therapy um, blog. And what he said was, it all works. And often things don't work for the reasons we think they work, right? So we have these different elements of Yes, you might be a guru within the uh, within the McKenzie mindset, or you might be this guru within the manual therapy mindset, or within just the uh, exercise mindset. While they all have their sort of avenue in which they preach, I think one of the benefits from the book is that everybody has the opportunity to take what they want from those individual gurus, and then. So take an element from um, from a McKenzie-based practitioner, take an element from a Paris-based practitioner, take an element from a Sarman approach, take an element from a social media approach. And while they might be gurus in their own avenue, everything has led them to have some element of success because at the end of the day, it might be more of those soft skills associated with um the ability to communicate with the patient or taking a look at all the different psychosocial aspects that might improve their patient outcomes that allowed them to become the clinician that they are. And so I think there is elements of um, who has the largest voice and that can be detrimental um, at times. But at the same time, I think understanding that these individuals wouldn't be there if it weren't for the benefit of the work that all these other clinicians, all these other physios have had put in uh, prior to prior to their establishment. So, yeah, brilliant. Exactly. Bring you in on that, Brian. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm Jack. I'm interested in hearing kind of your uh, your definitions for you know a leader and leadership versus guruism. You know, guruism to me speaks to it's like I don't know. It it just doesn't sit quite right it, it feels wrong right it, it's un, it's an uncomfortable word it's like guruism is somebody kind of preaching something that has no scientific backing but has a massive following and if you're looking from the outside in you're like what the heck where is this coming from um none of our guests whether you want to call um you know uh david butler peter o'sullivan uh Mul brian mulligan uh, gurus you know, all of their stuff has some scientific backing. And I think that goes back, speaking back to how, you know, young mirrors a profession, we're still exploring this research and discovering lots of new things. You know, all of the things that they're preaching and, and teaching and the following that they have are practicing in a way that is in the patient's best interest and um, does have some 
form of scientific backing. Uh, so yeah. And then, you know, as Tim said, kind of from a leadership standpoint, um, yeah, there's just certain things that we wouldn't be able to do right now if it weren't those that, that came before us. And if it weren't for these gurus, and I don't know if this is a good parallel or a poor parallel, but you know, was, uh, is Bill Gates a guru within the computer industry is Elon Musk, a guru within the automotive industry, you know, are they, are they gurus, but look at what they're doing. If it weren't for Bill Gates, we wouldn't have, wouldn't be sitting here on zoom right now on computers and Elon Musk is pushing, um, you know, electric vehicles, which I'm sure we would all agree is a good thing. So depends on how you look at it. But yeah, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that, Jack. Yeah, well, I certainly, I certainly, the reason I framed it as I did is because I think sometimes people end up on a, they think they're speaking in, in, in synonyms, but actually they end up extending it and not realizing the semantics underneath some of those words. And so I, I agree with you um, there, whereby it can be, and, and, and in many ways should be seen as an, a negative and something that people wouldn't want to identify, identify themselves confidently as a guru. I think the big one there is that it's uh, unfalsifiable and unjustified claims that then also then provoke and create a sort of cult-like environment under worship, right? So you end up with these sort of disciple effect of the fact that then people, it's not always the, and that's one of the things that's a shame of how sort of guruism or a guru can be made of someone when they sort of trying to get that off themselves. But fundamentally, if their following is such that then there is something about that 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 magnificent leader that can't be questioned, or that there is a veracity of of, of, of bite back that can occur, it's not necessarily always the person that's then heading that up that's the one that that is that is provoking it. Um, and so I think that that's why it is an interesting concept, certainly not something that I've got a, a perfect handle on. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm definitely someone that, in fact, I think my entire, my entire career, I don't think I've ever leveled that charge of guruism or called someone a guru, right? You can see some signs of it and often more in the followers than the, the actual the person at the, at the head of that. But I think it's something that is it's wise for us to protect ourselves from, but I think it's also used unnecessarily as an insult to some movers and shakers as a means of trying to bring them down a peg or two, right? So uh, I don't know how, how much of a Northern English expression that is, but essentially this, this notion of a sort of tall poppy syndrome is another thing that's described, whereby essentially it's just this, this idea of sort of trimming anyone that, that, uh, that, that kind of gets above the station. And I think that that's actually a real limiting factor within our industry. And so something that I'm not, um, I don't encourage, and certainly areas in time, uh, periods of time in which I think um, I've, I've been at risk and, and, and we as a team have been at risk of sometimes being uh, setting the bar artificially high. Um, that then means that anyone that, that, that does something outside of that or above that, uh, then we, we might be ones that are shooting at them and, and certainly have some regrets to that effect and have made some, Apologies somewhat publicly to that effect years ago. So I think it's uh, it's an interesting one. I don't know where the line is. I, and I, I think it's an ever moving and changing thing. I'm always one that says it all needs to come out in conversation. And that's why these and other um, discussion based media, such as what you're putting together, is exactly how you unearth that. Is instead of sort of sound bites, you then end up getting into the detail and understanding what makes people tick and what their justifications are. Because with guruism, of course, there's then also, is, is, there, a, is there a malicious motive in which someone is then seeking profit power or both? Uh, that then the ends justifies their means. They're not necessarily then bothered about the accuracy of their claims. They're not looking to sense check that. They're not getting opposing voices into them trying to sharpen their view. That's where they kind of get carried away on a theme. And whilst, of course, sometimes we might see that in our industry, I see that you're writing, affording them the charity to say that they're not intending to set off in that direction. And, and, and so that's 
that's a really promising thing that I'm glad to hear that you guys have noticed as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's one of those things that um, having the opportunity to interview these individuals and hear their entire voice and their entire story versus, okay, just talk to me a little bit about your treatment approach for blank. And then, <laughs> and then like, I, I mean, <laughs> talking to Brian Mulligan, I mean, Brian Mulligan's a character and Brian Mulligan believes in what he does and obviously has had an opportunity to, um, to change the lives of many individuals. But if I only took the snapshot of Brian Mulligan's perception of his treatment approach, that would potentially come off as a guruism or a, uh, or a, a self-benefit in terms of uh, preaching his approach, but to hear concepts about his failures and concepts about favorite books and stuff like that allows for you to see this individual in a more uh, complete light. So. It puts it into its more appropriate context. Absolutely. I think that any, for me, I, I speak a lot about sort of the differences in lenses, right? You know, making sure you get that magnifying glass microscope out sometimes to zoom in on the detail, but then also making sure you eventually back out to the sort of panoramic view so that you can sure. understand those differences because sometimes we need to get, create that focus but we also want to try and understand where it's situated so uh, I love that where I, where I think I wonder if there might be um, I don't know if it's a point of contention necessarily between us as individuals but I do the standing on the shoulders of giants is of course a, a, an, an adage that I'd agree with but fundamentally I do think there are areas where sometimes I think that's a little bit complacent and a little bit come by our of us sometimes because there are areas in which sometimes we might have gone down a, a route that that we're, we're certainly not stood on those shoulders we're actually in fact by standing on those shoulders for a period of time we've ended up blinding ourselves to something else that was going on elsewhere so for example if we stood on the shoulders of Robin McKenzie, unfortunately you couldn't interview him, he passed away, but a hugely influential character, I'm sure it'd have been on your list if he was with us. But one example in which, you know, a, a, a pursuit, not necessarily always directed by him, but let's say that that, that method of, of, of diagnosis and treatment is if we stood on those shoulders for, for too long, where the pursuit of what that was implying or the, the thing that we thought the mechanism of effect was under those interventions of repeat, repeat flexion or repeat extension and the way in which we thought we were making sort of biomechanical meaningful changes to people's vertebrae and discs, et cetera, means that sometimes it's that, of course, where we're at now, we needed that chapter. So I'm not disagreeing right. with it in principle, but I'm also saying that to some degree, there are some people still stuck in those weeds, right? The veracity, the, the, the veracity of those claims was right. in a moment in time in which they were difficult to counter. And so it's been blowing difficult to get people away from it. So to some degree, I always think we need to try and find this balance between, yeah, we stood on the shoulders of giants, but you, you've got to still make sure someone's poking away at said giants, <laughs> right? We've got, you, you can't, you can't, they, 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 and learning, and this is one of the things I wanted to, let me frame this in a, in a question as much as I do want to just invite your thoughts on that in case we do disagree, but also how much responsibility do some of these sort of people, people, heroes heroes of old, how much responsibility do they have to mature and update their views just because it's their legacy? Do they have to sort of die out on it? Or how much responsibility do they have into their later years to actually sort of mature some of their views and keep in touch with it so that then the, that inherent defensiveness of trying to make sure that they, you know, they don't have to throw everything away, but sort of, Peter Sullivan's a classic example of being sure. able to sort of denounce some of his own previous views. Not all of the names that we've talked about have, have been able to do that. And I can understand how painful that might be, but to some degree, I, that, I found that to be a shame, if I'm honest. 
a lot of our a lot of our guests, uh, Tan, I'll let you uh, speak on this. I know you have a couple points, but just a lot of our guests, whether they are, uh, you know, um, McKenzie therapists, manual therapy, you know, focused therapists, what have you, they're uh, ultimately the message that that we took away from the book and um, going back to themes was that you just need to develop a system. And I don't think many of our guests are so kind of siloed in their own, uh, you know, kind of thought or, or thought bubble um, that they disregard any other approach or classification. It's just that that's their system and that's what they've come to learn. And that's how they can best deliver quality treatment to the patient. And they think within a certain construct and maybe that construct is more so dominated by uh, Robin McKenzie, or maybe that, that construct is more so da- dominated by, you know, David Butler and, and uh, you know, pain education. It, it, that's kind of the lens that they look at the patient through. Um, I do think to your point, Jack, that, yeah, there is definitely some responsibility in, in these leaders to kind of open their eyes to other concepts and other approaches um, and be flexible with, uh, with their own and with their own um, paradigms or, or approach or classification, what have you. Uh, there is definitely responsibility. You can't shut out all of the research and because that's a bias, right? Focusing on, on only the patients that are doing better by your system is a, uh, a really strong bias and, and that's not right. And um, thankfully, you know, we didn't really get a lot of that in our, in our interviews. Um, if anything, it was people saying, yeah, you know, as Erson said, it all works, but it, it, oftentimes it doesn't work for the reasons that we think it works. Find a system that works best for you. Um, don't pigeonhole yourself and don't silo yourself. Yeah, sort of continuing off of both of you guys said, right, Peter O'Sullivan's uh, ability to acknowledge the fact that some of his original research possibly wasn't necessarily the reason why they saw the outcomes. I mean, you look at Paul Hodges and you, you look at some of the initial evidence in regards to the TA and the emphasis on when does that musculature become activated during uh, front loading and unexpected loading and the benefit and the association between that and multifidi. And so, I mean, that was one of those things I was just flipping through. Michael Ratliff, um, I mean, his some of his original research and one of the things that we talked about in the, uh, in the book um, was his perceptions about uh, plantar heel pain. Right. So, so taking a look at plantar fasciitis, uh, fasciitis and um, he talks about and says, my old research is being oversold. <laughs> right. And so he said this research was hyped up on Twitter and he's kind of not necessarily 100 percent for that. Right. So the opportunity to acknowledge that some of the stuff that you might have said, it might not necessarily be 100 percent true at this point in time, but being willing to acknowledge that, make that voice be heard. And I think sort of the segue into that statement is this is not a one and done project, right? This is, this is a living project that Brian and I are sort of taking on because in five years, there's going to be different movers and shakers within the industry. Our perception of moving and shaking the industry is going to change. Um, whether that be new research that becomes uh, apparent or different organizations that are moving our profession forward. And some of the individuals that we have in the book at the National Association for Black Physical Therapists. That is a movement and shaking within our profession and they're within the book because of that. Have they published all this research? No, not necessarily. Are they leaders in academia? No, but they are trying to move our profession in a direction that should be taken. And so I think that idea that, yes, people are going to read this book and say, how did they forget to include so-and-so? Shame on them. No, we understand this, this, this book, this book could have been 
5,000 pages long with, with a million chapters. And honestly, yeah, yeah. We, we would want it to be that way, right? <laughs> and Brian and I look at this list and we still talk about this list. I'm like, oh my gosh, like every day we're learning about more and more physios that should have been or potentially qualified to be within this. And I think that's one of the things that being here in the States, some of the movers and shakers um, in England or in New Zealand or in Australia we're just getting exposed to those people. And so I think, um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, we've had people say, well, what about all the the neuro specialists? What about some of the pediatric specialists? And so it sort of comes back to the initial uh, thought that this was a kind of a selfish project that Brian and I took on where we were saying, man, I think it'd be really cool if we could reach out to David Butler and talk to David Butler. Or Peter O'Sullivan. I read so many Peter O'Sullivan, watched so many of his YouTube videos. I'd love to talk to Peter O'Sullivan. And so the idea that one, our profession is going to continuously change. These individuals are going to have different answers in five years. None of us are going to be where we're supposed to be at, or we can't even think about where we're going to be at in five years from now. And so our ourselves are going to change. Our profession is going to change. Our movers and shakers are going to change. And I think being able to acknowledge that and sort of pivot with that throughout our spectrum of our life is and what life's all about. So yeah, I love I love that, and it's, it rings me. It, it reminds me so much of uh, the early stages of, of Physio Matters 2013. I remember making a list of courses that I couldn't afford to go on, and then turned up at their doorstep and with a microphone, and they kindly gave me some of their time. So there were there were various things that the, the selfishness of your project, as well as the fact that then a moment in time of which you needed to to, to come up with certain lists and then get on with things, and the fact that yeah, you see it as being a moving, living, breathing project that. Um, I think getting it codified and getting it written is something that really helps it to, to get going. But, you know, I love that. I love the fact that that is going to be something you see as maturing and that those voices can can then be added to um, uh, over time is, is fantastic. Tell us again, what, what's the book called? When is it out? And where can people find it? And also signpost people to your social media as we wrap up. Yeah. So the book is called uh, Movers and Mentors. Um, the uh, book can be found on Amazon, uh, but you can also go to our website, moversandmentors.com, and that'll um, give you some links to our social media and also link you uh, directly to Amazon um, so that you can get the book, either paperback or ebook, whichever you prefer. Um, and yeah, we're, we're looking forward to, to hearing feedback and we'd love to hear from people that have gotten the book and are looking through it. You know, we get some messages of people highlighting stuff and, and writing stuff in the book, and we think that's awesome. Um, use it however you like if you want to do an a la carte kind of encyclopedia approach and pick and choose who you want to read, or if you want to go start to finish, um, we just hope you, hope you enjoy it. Hope you find some value in it. And like I said, we're, we're looking forward to hearing from people. Yeah. And I think looking forward to hearing about who you perceive should be in this project. Like, um, <laughs> like, like Brian and I have been talking about as being like a living project. This is something that we are being exposed to individuals rules on a daily basis that we never knew about. And we're hoping that our guests have that same experience as they read this book, because I think everybody has an opportunity to provide some sort of advice in one way, shape or form. And I think it's your opportunity to disseminate that advice and see, does that speak true to you? What elements can I take from that? And how can I make this help me become a better person? Um, and so become, become the, uh, uh, the individual that all these mentors want you to become in one way, shape or form versus I'm going to take and listen to this and follow this 110% um, because I think everybody has a little bit of advice that we can sort of take away from it. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think one of the things that excites me about it, especially as a as a growing project, is it will just naturally internationalize itself, won't it? And the fact that we can learn so much from each other, that, that some of these concepts transcend borders as we try to help people with their pain and injury and beyond its implications into public health, as many of your guests and, and, and you guys have said today. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks for your work. Really excited to get stuck into the book myself. And, um, and yeah, hopefully we'll speak again soon. Jack, thank you for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Thanks, Jack. Have a good day. Thanks, Jim.